Amen. Our reading from God's holy word this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and continuing to verse 13. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, as we come now before your word and we give our attention to it, we would ask that you would give your attention to us. You know what every soul in this room needs to hear from this your word today. You have fashioned every soul in this room after your very image. You are a God who wishes that none would perish and that all would come to eternal life. Jesus, you have said you desire our sanctification and that you sanctify us in the truth. We would ask now, O Father, that you would send that Holy Spirit as you did years ago like a dove upon Jesus. That you would send him now to light, as it were, upon everyone in this room. That you would meet with us here. And that we might find, by having met with you, we are forevermore changed. Come and meet us now in this word, we ask it. In Jesus' name, amen. I was telling someone a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about a certain sporting event and got on the subject of boxing for a very few minutes that my own boxing career was very short. It lasted all but three minutes when a friend of mine took out his boxing gloves and handed me another set, and he, we were going to go a round or two uh, together, and he was going to teach me a few things. But when 
I received that left hook in my jaw and I spit out some blood. I thought, I'm done with this. I don't need this in my life anymore. And I realized that boxing was not in my future. This was not going to be my, my calling. In fact, when you have a pretty face like this, you don't need to be a boxer anyway. To protect it, and keep it, keep it together as much as possible. I remember what he said to me, though, when I put on those boxing gloves and we were beginning to dance around in his uh, garage. He says, Nate, let's see what you're made of. Obviously, I wasn't made of much, at least when it came to boxing. I didn't pass, as it were, the test. What we have before us today in Mark chapter 1 is Jesus beginning his round of boxing, so to speak. Uh, The test that will come there in the wilderness with the evil one, the temptation and the trial that he will face. It's the one of many tests that he will experience throughout the whole of his life, culminating in that ultimate test A clash, a boxing match, so to speak, prophesied of years ago in Genesis chapter 3 that that seed of the serpent will come to crush the heel of the one who is the seed of the woman. But the seed of the woman will deal a death blow better than the left hook of my friend who will crush the head of the serpent. And in so doing, Mark is telling us and he shows us in this passage as we're beginning to glimpse who Jesus is and what it is that he is called to do, we're beginning to see the answer to the question that my friend was raising about me. We're seeing what Jesus is made of. What he's made of. Is he fit for the match that he finds himself in? Can he receive the blow that is a part of the calling of the ministry of which he has been sent? Will he tap out like I did? Or will he be one and when the bell rings, his enemy lies on the mat? As we look at Mark chapter 1 verses 1 through 13 together, I want to look at it in four ways with you this morning. I want you to see, first of all, the preparation. The preparation. And then I want you to see, secondly, the identification. The identification. And then I want you to see, thirdly, the examination. The examination. It's here in this passage. And I want you to see, fourthly, the vindication. The vindication. Preparation, identification, examination, and vindication. I want to start with preparation. It's right there on the surface of the text. It starts with this character referred to as John. He is the one there in verse 2 that Isaiah is prophesying from Isaiah chapter 40 from many years ago. This voice of one crying in the wilderness. This, This one who Malachi chapter 3 will call the messenger whom God will send. He is described here as John the Baptist. And what is he called to do? Well, he's called to prepare us. And he's called specifically to prepare a way for the Lord. And notice how he prepares the way for the Lord. You see it there in verse 4. He proclaims a baptism 
of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This, of course, is why he has called John the Baptist. He is not a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. Don't get this mistaken. I once had a Baptist minister say, well, I go back to the ancient tradition of John uh, the Baptist. I said, well, the SBC didn't start in the first century. I can assure you of that, that this baptism, which is referred to here, is a unique baptism of preparation. Calling the people of God, Israel, all Judea and Jerusalem, as is mentioned in the text, to repentance, to forgiveness of sins, to prepare, as it were, their own heart for the coming of the Lord. Now it's quite clear in John's description, or in Mark's description of John, that John is a prophet. He's he's a prophet, and he comes in the spirit of the prophets, one prophet in Particular, you can see it there through the description in verse 6 of our text. Notice John's clothing and his diet. He was clothed with camel's hair, we're told, and he wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Now, anyone familiar with the Old Testament and reading the Gospel of Mark immediately are having bells going off in their heads because this is exactly how the prophet Elijah is described in the Old Testament. We read in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, that Elijah wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And he is described in other passages as one who eats locusts and wild honey. It's the exact description that's given here of Mark in Mark 1.6 of this man, John the Baptist. Now, why is that significant? Well, it's significant because at the very end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 3, this messenger who's going to come is described in Malachi 4, the very last chapter of the Old Testament, as one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. Elijah will be the one who prepares the way of the Lord. And so when Mark here is giving us a description of a man named John dressed as Elijah and eating like Elijah, he is indicating that the prophecy of Malachi, the anointed one, the Messiah, The one who is going to come to deliver his people has arrived. In their generation, he has come. This is very exciting news. Now, maybe you have wondered, as I wondered, especially as a kid, I wondered, why did John dress the way that he did? Why did he he eat the way that he did? I mean, locusts? I mean, really, locusts? Why did he go through this experience, this this way of being, this habit of of living that was uh, John's habit of living? Was he some sort of whole foods advocate? Was he very particular about his clothing choices? Only organic clothing, only camel's hair. No, 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 he is in the spirit of a prophet. And if you know much about the prophets, you know that they not only proclaimed with their lips the truth that God gave them to declare, but they also performed with their life the very message that they were called to. They, in very real sense, embodied the message they came to proclaim. For instance, in Jeremiah chapter 13, verses 1 to 7, the prophet Jeremiah actually goes out and buys and then wears and then buries a sash, a belt that he would wear around his waist. 
And then he goes and he buries this sash in the ground and leaves it there for a while. And then he digs it up and he shows it to the people of Israel, all ruined, now completely unusable, um, muddied with, with dirt. And we're told that he preaches to them this message. Even so, I will, speaking for God, spoil the pride of Judah. And the great pride of Jerusalem, the evil people who will not hear my words and who stubbornly refuse to follow me in their heart, they will be as worthless as this loincloth, as good for nothing. The prophet Jeremiah there is in his embodiment, in his actions, in his drama, we might say. He is not merely saying the words of God, he is living them out. This is what John is doing here. He is portraying with his whole person the reality of a wilderness wandering. He's a man who looks like a wilderness man. He's a man who eats like a wilderness man. We're told here in the text his whole ministry is performed in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't go into the city and preach. He stands outside the city in the wilderness. And if you want to hear John preach and proclaim or be baptized by John, what do you have to do as a person? You have to go out of the city. You have to go into the wilderness. Why is this the case? What is John trying to communicate? What is God trying to communicate to prepare the hearts of his people for the Messiah? He's trying to communicate this, my friends, that there is a need for a new exodus. There is the need for a new exodus. That the people of God have lost their way. They are idolaters. They have forgotten who God is. They are no longer following Him. If they're going to be prepared for the Messiah who will come. And who will come as a king and advance His kingdom. They are a people who have to cross back over the river. That God had crossed with the power of Joshua years before. When Joshua parted the Jordan River and the people went forward on dry land and Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the warrior God, goes and clears the way for the people of Israel to inhabit the land of Canaan. It's as if the people of God now must go back out into the wilderness because they are a people who, like the wilderness generation, have not trusted in God and did not obey Him. Why were the people of God in the wilderness for 40 years anyway? Well, it was because they didn't believe God. When they sent the spies into the land to search it out, even though God had told them, I have given you the land, now go take it. The people of God looked at the land and said, I know what God has said, but listen, those people are huge. There's no way we can take them. They're giants in the land. They will lick us in no time flat. And they didn't trust God and they didn't obey God. And a whole generation of the people of Israel died out as they wandered 40 years in the wilderness. Till a new generation would come that would trust God and would obey God. And you see what John is saying. People of God, I'm not coming into the city to preach to you. I'm calling you out of the city because you are a wilderness people. You must repent of your sins. And you must trust In Almighty God. Do you see there is a preparation that's needed to meet the Messiah? There's a preparation that's needed to experience and know the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the experience that's needed is that we must come to terms with the bad news about ourselves. Is that we are a people 
who do not trust God and do not obey God. And if the Messiah were to come, will he find faith upon the earth? Are we a people who can truly say we are followers of the living God? John says to the generation of Israel and all of Judea and all of Jerusalem, come out into the wilderness, repent of your sins for a baptism for forgiveness. Do you see? He's going back to that Jordan River. And it's as if as they go back to the wilderness and he dips them in or sprinkles. We're not sure of the whole entire tradition of what takes place there in terms of his baptism. What we're seeing, though, is a sense of exodus, a sense of parting, making a way, preparing the way for the Messiah. Each time when we come into the presence of the Lord on a Sunday morning, do you know what my prayer is, and I pray what your prayer is, is that the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would prepare a way for the work of God in the hearts of His people. And I pray that as we gather together, one of the things that strikes upon your soul as we look at God's Word is that you again are pricked and challenged and convicted to acknowledge your sin, that you need a fresh cleansing of God, that you can hear the forgiveness of the Lord so that you too can walk forward in a way that is now prepared in your heart for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because He's coming again, my friends. He's coming a second time. And when he comes, he will come as a majestic king to consummate his kingdom. And he will put all of his enemies under his feet. And right now he's being patient. And he's waiting so that none would perish, Peter writes, but all would come to eternal life. Do You see, John wants the nation of Israel to not be caught unawares when the bridegroom shows up. And they didn't have enough oil for their lamps. And they weren't watching for him. He wants them to be ready for the coming of the Lord. Are you ready for the coming of the Lord? John is preparing the way for the Lord. Now I want you to see not only preparation in this passage. I want you to see identification. Look at verses 9 to 11 in the text. We see that after John speaks of the declaration of his mission, his call to prepare a way for the Lord, calling the people of Israel to repentance, to the waters of of baptism. We're told that just after this, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is, the, this is the starting gate. This is um, the, the, the firing of the race, so to speak. Uh, Jesus is coming out. He is uh, revealing himself on a public stage as all of Judea, we're told in verse 5, and all of Jerusalem, speaking of the, of the, the crowds of people that were coming out, To undergo and to experience the ministry of John. Jesus is right there in the mix of those people. And what we see is that he joins them in the waters of baptism. Now I was querying a little bit with my boys last night about this uh, particular passage. And I asked them, why is it that Jesus was baptized? Okay, if, if John is, a, is baptizing in a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, 
it shouldn't take you long to go, well, if Jesus was baptized, is he being baptized for a repentance, for the forgiveness of sins? Is he in some way, shape, or form identifying with, as it were, a sinner as one who is a sinner? And the answer is both yes and no. As Jesus comes to the waters of baptism, he doesn't come as all of Judea and Jerusalem comes to the waters of baptism as sinners in need of repentance and forgiveness of sins. No, he comes identifying with sinners as the one who is the solution for their sin. He comes to walk the road of his people for his people. You see, John was concerned about this. You can see it in Matthew. Matthew gives us a much longer description of the baptism of Jesus. Mark has a very particular focus of what he's trying to accomplish in his gospel. But Matthew expands it a bit. And he tells us that when Jesus first came to John, John said, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. John understood. You don't need a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But you know what Jesus says? Jesus says, let it be so for now. That I might fulfill all righteousness. What is he saying in that? He's saying I am coming to the waters of baptism. As the one and true Israelite. The only faithful follower. Who has come to fulfill all righteousness. For all the followers of God who are not followers, but wanderers, wilderness wanderers, who disbelieve and disobey day in and day out the profession that they are followers of God. I have come for them to fulfill all righteousness for them. He has come to identify himself with his people. That he is the one who will fulfill for them all redemption. In other words, Jesus' baptism is an act of saying, I will be known by my people as one with my people, as one who redeems my people. I come to the waters of baptism. You see, what Jesus is in substance is what baptism gives us in symbol. The the symbol of baptism is the washing away of sin. A, A new start, a freshness in relationship with God, an opening up of a passageway. Who is Jesus? He clothes us in this righteousness. He gives us that cleansing. He is that mediator between God and man who opens up heaven to his people. He has come in substance to fulfill the symbol of baptism. Now this is emphasized even more, but in a different way, when Jesus steps out of the water. As soon as Jesus steps out of the water, we're told that the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And most certainly, don't you remember the words that John just spoke a little earlier in the passage? Look there at verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
Spirit. So you're beginning to see pictures in John or in Mark come together here in and around John's ministry and Jesus' baptism. There is something, if we can put it this way, in John's writing that is that is reflective of what happens in the waters of baptism for Jesus. Jesus experiences, if I can say it, a personal Pentecost. A personal Pentecost here in His baptism. The Holy Spirit who will fall upon all of God's people. In Acts chapter 2, after the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, the Spirit will be sent and He will fall upon all of God's people. And we will be baptized with the power of the Holy Spirit. John is, is forecasting that. And yet already we see the beginning of the coming down of heaven to earth. That the Holy Spirit is descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that it reminds you of those opening verses in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Does it remind you of those verses? How the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters at the opening of creation. What is the Spirit of God doing right here? Is a dove who hovers over the waters of baptism. As Jesus emerges as a picture of a new humanity. The hope of all of the nations being placed in Him. It's a picture of new creation. It's a picture of second Adam. Herein is the hope, the answer, the redemption that the world has been longing for and crying for an answer to all of the problems that we have faced. Here is a dove, the Spirit, who is bringing about new life with a new creation, with a new Adam. And if it weren't enough, it's the Father who confirms it, isn't it? As that voice that comes from heaven, wasn't it creation that was spoken into being? That voice that comes from creation. That voice now that comes in recreation. Who identifies who Jesus is. This is identification. You see, He is identified with us. But now the Father identifies His very essence. Who is He? He is my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. You see, the Son that was Adam fashioned by God's likeness, whom He breathed the breath of life, spirit life, into, became the Son who, though loved, fell and was not pleasing to the Lord. This Jesus Christ, this true Son of God, the one who is both in the likeness of God and in the likeness of man, fit to represent God to man and man to God, this Jesus, this second Adam, has come. To recreate the earth after His very image. As we see preparation in this passage. Getting us ready for the coming of the Lord and preparing a way for the Messiah. We see the Lord arrive. And we see beautiful identification. Jesus identifying with us. And the Father identifying with Jesus, His very essence. But you know what we see? All of this preparation, all of the way of the Lord, all of this identification leads to the mission, which is what we'll see thirdly in this passage, the examination. You'll see it there in verses 12 and 13. Look at how the text reads. The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness. 
And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And it was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Isn't it interesting that language of the Spirit now immediately, Mark's favorite word. You're going to see it over and over in the text of Mark. Everything is quick. It's moving with an urgency. Notice the Spirit here doesn't merely lead him. The Spirit doesn't merely guide him. The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. He drove him. You probably hear something of like a, of like a, a cowboy driving cattle running them into, as it were, a pasture land or to a, a field. It's as if the Spirit of the living God is compelling Jesus into the very heart of His mission. He has now been commissioned as that Son who is baptized and set apart for the purposes of accomplishing the redemption of His people. And Mark is telling us he wastes no time. He gets right down to business. Where does he go? Out into the wilderness. This second Adam is going to be tested. He's going to be tested like the first Adam was tested. By that serpent, that, that, that primordial snake of old, the evil one, Satan himself. He will be tested, but notice, he's not tested in a garden, is he? He's tested in a wilderness. It is as if Mark is trying to tell us the, the world that was perfectly made has now been unmade. The garden that depicted the dwelling place of God where we communed with Him in perfect harmony has now become a howling wasteland. This second Adam is tested not in the garden, he is tested in the wilderness. And notice as he's in the wilderness, who's there with him? This is an interesting note. Mark tells us, as the only gospel writer who tells us this, he's there with what? Wild animals. And you think to yourself, that's an odd note. It's very strange. It's, it's actually quite strange when you think of the gospel of Mark. Mark is not known for giving you added details. Almost everything that Mark tells you is shorter than everything else that the other Gospels writers tell you. You think of the, the baptism. We're not, we don't mention all of the details of the baptism or the temptation. Where's even the three different temptations that Matthew goes on and on about and Luke speaks about and the, all of the ways that the serpent uh, comes to him? We don't have any of that in Mark. And yet he tells us, the only Gospel writer who tells us, he's with the wild animals. What's he saying to us? He's keeping with the theme. He wants you to know that this second Adam, who has come not to a garden, to a wilderness, has also been dwelling with animals that we once were at harmony with, of which Adam named in Genesis chapter 2, of which were his, his, his camaraderie, as it were, his at peace with the world. These animals have now become wild, but who is Jesus with? He's with the wild animals. He's not against them. He's not fighting them. He's a second Adam who is Lord over them. He is dwelling with them as if to say, there is a day that is coming where the lion will lay down with the lamb. There is a day that is coming in the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ where there will no longer be, for those who are in the new heavens and the new earth, things called threatening wild animals. The Lord Jesus who made the animals 
The Lord Jesus who now comes to the animals is the Lord Jesus who dwells with the animals in this God-forsaken place called the wilderness. And it's there where Satan tempts him. Notice he tempts him for 40 days. For 40 days. You, you caught that, right? For 40 days. And immediately, where did you go? Yep, back to the Old Testament. You, you should have gone back to the Old Testament. And back to Exodus for those 40 days. Of course, mirror what? In identification that he is walking the path of the people of Israel. He is, he is on pilgrimage, so to speak, in one way, shape, or form. Or we might say in a better way. He is going back to rewrite the story of the people of Israel. To write over the story of the people of Israel. When they were in the wilderness being tempted, they grumbled and they complained. They forgot their God and they shook their fist at him. They created an idol called a golden calf when Moses disappears for a while on the mountain. But Jesus is there 40 days without sustenance, fasting and being tested by Satan himself. And we learn that this one who is walking the path of the people of Israel sustains the test and the examination. He is the one who passed the test of Adam. He is the one who passed the test of Israel. The test that we fail He is the one who fulfills them. There at the end, isn't it? Just that almost sweet little note that Mark gives us. And the angels were there. They They were ministering to him. You see, we started this service, didn't we? Talking about heaven coming down. Heaven coming down. That's what Mark 1 is all about. It's about heaven coming down. Jesus is that Son of God. From the throne room of heaven who has come down. The Holy Spirit has come down and descended from heaven. To guide, direct and lead. Even even compel Jesus for the answering of his ministry. The voice, where does it come from? It comes from heaven. But so that the earth can hear. That this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And as the evil one there tempts him in the wilderness. Heaven has come there. He's not just there with the wild animals. The angels have come. And it is they who are ministering to him. You see what this text teaches us? It teaches us about the preparation for the way of the Lord. It teaches us about the identification of Jesus with us and God with Jesus. And it teaches us about examination. That Jesus passes the test. And in doing so, it teaches us about vindication. And we'll close with this. You see, this is just the first of Jesus' tests. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, you know what we're going to see? The evil one everywhere. We're going to see him show up sometimes in the voices and the faces of the Pharisees. We're going to see him show up sometimes in demon-possessed healings. We're going to see the, the, the world and its brokenness show up in, in, in marred human beings, whether blind or, or lame or... Or dumb. We're going to see the world being remade by this second Adam, this Redeemer, this Messiah figure, Jesus Christ. 
And what it tells us is that if he is able to pass this first test that no human being has been able to pass, is that we can hold out hope that he'll pass the last test. And in fact, Mark hints at it in the text. In verse 10 of the text that's before us today, he uses a very unusual word. Notice verse 10. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn was um, available to, to Mark to describe the heavens opening up, describe uh, the heavens being revealed. But the language of torn is actually a, a fairly violent language. It's torn. He's punching a hole, as it were, in the sky. He looks up and he sees heaven torn, ripped open as the Holy Spirit, the dove, falls from heaven. You know, Mark is not going to use this word again in the Gospel of Mark and Till the very end in chapter 15, whereas Jesus hangs on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're told that a few verses later he breathes his last after giving a loud cry. And then Mark pans to the temple and he tells us in that moment that the curtain that covered the Holy of Holies that kept the people of God from going in and dwelling with God personally, was torn from top to bottom. Torn from top to bottom. Mark doesn't give us details for no reason. Why was it torn from top to bottom and not bottom from top? Well, it was torn top to bottom because God Himself was tearing it. He was opening up the way. For people who are wilderness wanderers to be welcomed into the promised land of the presence of Jesus breathed his last. In the moment that his flesh was being torn, the curtain was being torn, and heaven was coming to earth. Heaven was coming to earth. And what it means is what we're reading in Mark chapter 1 is that God is opening up to you the riches of a relationship with Almighty God through the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who on the cross, through the finished work of the final test, when the seed of the serpent came to seek to crush him, that he crushed the serpent instead. And he showed himself as victorious over the evil one, our final enemy. And he washed away the slate of our sin and robes us in faith in the righteousness of Christ so that we can enter into the holy of holies. Even right now, my friends, the Holy Spirit is in this room. And you are in, through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the riches of the gospel, you are in the holy place. For the blood on the mercy seat is Jesus. And that means the story that Mark is telling, the story of Jesus' life is actually your story. It's a story of vindication. Because listen, my friends, if you've trusted in Christ, what that means is that Christ's story is your story. So I want you to hear this. It's very important. If Christ has identified with the Father and He has identified with you and you have trusted in Him, then you identify with the Father in Christ. And you have all the passport and openness with the Father that Jesus himself has. 
If Jesus has passed the test and you're in Jesus, then you have passed the test. You're not living a test to approve of yourself before Almighty God. The test has been passed for you, and you're trusting in the only one who could ever pass the test, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not under examination to be welcomed into the presence of God. Oh, did you think that He would love you more if you did something a little better? Had you forgotten that the test is over and 100% has been placed on the test? An A and a smiley face is there because the banner of God's love over you is yours in Christ Jesus. The exam is over. And what we see in the text of the Gospel of Mark is the fact that we see what Jesus is made of. We see that he is made of one who can faithfully represent us to God and God to us and can open up the way for God to be in the dwelling place with man and man to be in the dwelling place of God. And you know what also it says? If Mark is telling that story, then he's also telling your story. He's telling you what you're made of. He's telling you what you are made of. You are made of Jesus. You're made of Jesus. That's what you're made of. And you're being made into the likeness of Jesus. You're being made into the likeness of Jesus. You're made of Him. His name is upon you. His merits are your merits. His future is your future. His home is your home. You are a son and daughter of the living God. It is why today, as we in the presence of Almighty God, arise as it were as cleaned and washed, you should hear the voice from heaven say not just to Jesus, that this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You should hear the Father say of you, this is my son, this is my daughter, And whom is my beloved, in whom I am well pleased? The Lord is not frowning over you this morning. There's not a scowl on his face towards you. Because the test has already been passed. Jesus, we know what he's made of. And when you're in him, we know what you're made of. Now, friends, I pray that in Christ, as we walk the journey of the gospel of Mark, you would begin to believe this truth in a fresh and powerful way. And it would begin to color every aspect of your life so that you could walk, as it were, with the freshness of the moment of Jesus standing before his Father with the dove descending and the water still washing off of him. Because that's who you are right now in the presence of Almighty God. And that's not going to change tomorrow. It's not going to change ever because the mediator and the Savior, Jesus Christ, right now stands on your behalf. He is your advocate and he will never stop speaking on your behalf. He has purchased you with his own blood. Friends, today as we come into the presence of the Lord and rejoice in the truth of the gospel, know that Jesus won the boxing match. The evil one brought is worse and it wasn't near enough. 
Jesus has slain him and he has laid him low. And so he's got nothing on you today if you're in him. You are his and he is yours. Let us rejoice and sing hallelujah. For the Lamb of God who is slain is the Lion of Judah who is victorious. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we would ask you now to burn, as it were, the realities of these truths into our hearts today as we so desperately need them. Lord, how easy it is and how quickly it happens that these truths leak out of our minds and we live as if we're still under examination. We live as as if the last problem that we messed up on is the grade for our existence in relationship to you and to one another. And you would tell us today, don't forget the fact that the test that matters has already been taken and its grade has already been credited to your account. Jesus, the master test taker, the warrior king who has overcome our enemy, he is ours and we are his. And so what can we fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? Lord, today let the boldness and the comfort and joy that comes with the truth of the gospel be ours in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.